Well, good morning. We are continuing our study on church health. And this morning's message is on evangelism. Topical messages are interesting to me. I typically have probably a better feel for how the message is going to go after I've written through my notes on a a particular passage. I know what's going to prompt my heart into exaltation and excitement, typically, as I've studied and thought through what I'm going to say. And I have a, a manuscript this morning. I have notes to follow, but I also have a topic before me that has traditionally, in terms of my experience, been something that means a whole lot uh, in terms of just what I've enjoyed as far as being a Christian, and that is sharing the good news of the gospel to people and seeing conversions and watching what happened to me happen to other people. I'm not always faithful to evangelize, and I'm at times quite weak, and so I don't come to you as someone who has it all figured out. But when it happens, when you are finding yourself suddenly in a powerfully energized gospel conversation, you know that there is perhaps nothing sweeter in terms of the the feeling of I know I'm a Christian because I'm giving the message and I'm watching God work through me and I'm experiencing new life happen in front of me. There's, there's no sweeter experience than evangelism. And as we prepared this series, this was sort of a hidden theme that suddenly emerged and we said, we've got to do a Sunday on evangelism. And so here we are and I am opening this up to you. I I greatly respect uh, Mark Dever, who's written the chapter that I formed the sermon from. I'm using his outline directly and then just interlaced my own heart into what I read from him. He wrote the Nine Marks of a Healthy Church book. Pastor Mark Dever is the pastor of over 20 years in Washington, D.C. at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Mark Dever has uh, joined forces with people like Al Mohler and John Piper and John MacArthur to create the Together for the Gospel movement that happens every other year. And 10,000 people or more gather in Louisville, Kentucky for that. He's done a lot and he's influenced a lot of churches in terms of church health, both nationally and internationally. But one of the chief things that I love about Mark is I love about any pastor or any Christian is Mark has a genuine heart for evangelism. He loves to evangelize. He loves to gospel and he recommends all kinds of churches because of that and is into church planning. And sometimes he even recommends churches that are outside the box just because they're, they're about evangelism. And I think that people who are about evangelism as Christians It creates this childlike humility where a lot of the pretenses or the facades of accomplishments that we we mount up, all those things sort of fall away. Because really all that matters is people coming to Christ, people believing. And so for Mark, who's a Cambridge scholar, for him to be an evangelist really strikes uh, accord with me in terms of the true priority of being a Christian and what it means to have childlike faith and be on a mission. It's the missing element. Evangelism is the missing element of the Christian life often for many of us. It's the part of the Christian life that should be the cake and ice cream that we just suddenly are doing without. We're, we're not enjoying what is wonderful about being a Christian because we don't share it with people. Paul told Timothy, 
do the work of an evangelist. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, but then be all about the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. When we think of evangelism, some negative stereotypes enter in, right? The uh, KFC bucket being passed at the revival, collecting, um, you know, uh, the, the offerings, right? You know, let's, let's send it around one more time. We've not reached our goal yet. Um, sorry, Pete, I go into a southern accent for some reason when I stereotype that moment. Um, but the televangelist who's uh, always asking for money or the dreaded door knocker who comes by, I'm sorry. I know that door knocking evangelism, people are one to Christ. I just don't like people coming to my door like that. I don't, I don't know. I just have to say it, it feels more like a sales pitch than evangelism. There's an earned reputation of manipulation and manipulators that are, that's associated with evangelism. All the way back in the 50s, there was a movement in our country to mobilize evangelists and evangelism. And there was a book written, Soul Winning Made Easy by C.S. Lovett where he claimed that a trained soul winner can bring his prospect to a decision for Christ. He can and will do that, is the tone of this book. So he markets this idea of conversation control, that you know exactly what you're going to say, and you know where the conversation's going to go and how it's going to turn, and you anticipate their responses and have your counters ready, but you're keeping control. And under helpful hints, he says you want to get your prospect off alone, like off to the side. And you, you want to take on a commanding presence and a commanding voice with this brother. And you put your hand firmly on the subject's shoulder. And with a semi-commanding voice, you say to him, bow your head with me. And he says, no, do not look at him when you say this, but bow your head first. Out of the corner of your eye, you will see him hesitate at first. Then as the resistance crumbles, his head will come down. This sounds like a magic trick or something, right? Your hand is on his shoulder. You will feel the relaxation of, of whatever, and you will know when his heart yields. Bowing your head first causes terrific psychological pressure. Well, this is not gospel evangelism, I tell you that. It's hypnotic pressure that is plastic and fake. And it was all part of a movement that happened from the 50s onward in the evangelical church that was decisionism with altar calls and the whole deal. And it's pressure that Mark Dever likens to the crusades of the 11th through the 13th centuries where it was believe or die by sword. That, that's heavy manipulation. But this is also a form of manipulation. So what Christians do often, instead of learning how to evangelize in a, evangelize in a Bible-based way, they just delegate it. They don't deny evangelism, but they'll delegate it up to the pastors or to the professionals or to the trained evangelists. We just need to bring them to church or to church programs and everything will be okay. People rationalize, I'm ill-equipped, I don't know my Bible, I'm not qualified to teach or preach or share the gospel, I don't want to do it, I, I feel guilty because of my sin. And all of these things might be at play as to why you may or may not evangelize, feeling ill-equipped, disqualified, not, get, not having a ready handle on verses, but all of those obstacles can and should be overcome if you're going to be a person who puts yourself out there, who enjoys the dessert of the Christian life. Now, it can be awkward, 
but it's a lot of fun if you give yourself to evangelism. So I'm going to deconstruct what evangelism is not first, and then I'll tell you what evangelism is. First of all, it's not imposition. Imposition. What do I mean by that? I mean this. You're not imposing your will or your beliefs on someone when you evangelize, as if they have what they believe, you have what you believe, and you're imposing your beliefs on top of their beliefs as some sort of competition. Our cultural lie is that telling people the gospel is somehow this kind of hate speech that is unfair, unjust, and wrong. It's inappropriate to impose your beliefs onto someone else's beliefs. The American experiment is true. We are a melting pot. We do have people that believe different things because of religious freedom. But at the same time, the reason that this is not that kind of imposition onto them is because God has commissioned you and has commissioned me to share Christ and to share his word because his word is the inspired word of God. These gospel facts are inspired truths. And so we're coming with the authority of the Bible, the authority of God's word, and the conviction that this is true and this will give someone life will give someone the answer. So that cultural myth and lie that we are imposing our conversion experience and forcing someone onto onto someone else's experience where they have it their way and you have it your way, we need to get over that and not let that lie hinder us from saying, no, I've got a commission from God and I have truth that I need to share with someone. In In essence, we are just the messenger We're just the messenger and the source and resource for why we're doing what we're doing is God and his word. You know, the reality is it can't be imposition because God's word teaches that no matter how well you present the gospel and watch this, no matter how poorly you present the gospel, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make the horse drink, right? So no matter how well you do or how poorly you do, conversion is up to God. So this is not some game of I'm imposing or I'm forcing something. No, we are just the messenger presenting truth that we know is true by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Positively or negatively, people will respond. But we're just part of the process. Remember 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? What is, we are servants through whom you believed as the Lord is assigned. Listen, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. I think oftentimes we believe that Everything rests on how well we present or how much Bible we know in the moment. Or, you know, we we walk away from an evangelistic encounter and say, if I just would have said this or if I had brought up that, then something would have happened. Or why didn't I say anything at all? But really, we need to see ourselves as providentially placed by God as part of a farming process. Some sow, some water. God has to bring the increase. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. He's the one who makes us competent as ministers of the new covenant. Secondly, it's not a personal 
testimony. So it's not imposition. It's also not a personal testimony. Now that could be counterintuitive to you because you maybe have been trained in evangelism to believe that you need to tell your story and that your story is the key to bringing about conversions. Now, let me be the first to say that a personal testimony is very powerful. I believe in sharing your story. I believe in sharing your testimony. But by just sharing your gospel experience, that is not the same thing as sharing gospel truths. Now, you can share your testimony and you can leave gospel truths out of that. And people can readily say, you know, I'm glad Jesus did that for you, right? Again, the spirit of our age, I'm fine. I'm doing just great or I'm not doing well at all, but I'm still happy for you that Jesus helped you out, right? Instead, evangelism says, this is what Jesus did for me, and I can tell you my story, but this is what the gospel says in light of you and the decision that you need to make to believe upon him. Again, we're dealing with the that's good for you postmodern culture, and nobody's going to argue with you about getting something good from Jesus. However, the moment that you bring in inspired facts where you're saying Jesus is the only way, Jesus is the one true and only God. The death, burial, and resurrection is the only way you can be forgiven of your sins. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and not look for some better deal. You are in jeopardy in terms of eternal hell because of your sin against a holy God. God is holding you accountable to this moment right now. You begin to hint at, hint at concepts like these and it's on. That's evangelism, and that's different than just sharing your conversion experience, though I think sharing your conversion experience is very appropriate. It sets the stage, and it can be very powerful. It's not exactly the same thing as evangelizing. Number three, social action or political involvement is not evangelism. Now, there has been a great movement for social action and what's called social justice where the church in the last several decades has mislabeled social justice, social involvement, and political involvement, save the country speech, or deal with societal ills movements, and they have misplaced that or mislabeled that for evangelism. A lot of times people very good-naturedly, out of the greatest motive, will be involved in these movements, be involved in these kinds of outreach dimensions, be involved in things that are very, very necessary for our country, for the betterment of our country, for the betterment of our society. Feeding the poor, feeding the hungry, reaching out to people who are on the, the precipice of having an abortion or not. Uh, you know, political conservatism to try to stave off liberalism and societal ills that are that are dragging people down into all kinds of cultural malaise and 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 our culture that becomes basically drunken and in misguidedness not seeing sin for what it really is i understand these movements are powerful and are necessary and a lot of them are christian based and a lot of them are parachurch movements that were spawned from the church but be careful to not misplace involvement there for evangelism. 
Now, again, just like with a personal testimony, you can do those things and involve yourself in those movements and give your time, give your talent, give your money towards those things. And then you can either add or subtract the gospel from that. A lot of times, those kinds of social action movements can set the stage for giving your testimony and then giving gospel facts. And that's wonderful. But a lot of times, people will leave off gospel facts and leave off the confrontation of evangelism, which is, again, our commission. We must remember that history proves that societies, whole societies are transformed by individuals coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what changes the culture, people getting saved. That's the whole story of the book of Acts. That's what's Christ's mission for the world. Culture is transformed by conversion and then by converted Christians banding together and guess what? Being part of churches and churches are like lighthouses, beacons of light throughout the world, throughout the nations, which transform the culture or at least confront the culture until Christ ultimately comes and burns it all down and creates the new heavens and the new earth, right? So our mission is to evangelize and the chief agent of influence and culture is the church. I just want to say this. Look at England. Where did all the missionaries come from? They came from the United Kingdom. They came from England in a generation or 150 or 200 years ago. All of the English Puritans, all of the, all of the churches, all of the theology, all of the missions. Where do you, I mean, where did they think the China Inland Mission came from or Hudson Taylor came from? These people, they came from, or David Livingston, they came from England. They were all part of the universities that are now cold and dead and liberal and churches where the fields have been burned over twice and the ground is hardened and it's very difficult to plant churches there or have churches there. And that was only 150 years ago. So the key is to keep churches warm and to keep movement strong and to keep evangelism going. Our country is not far from that where now the missionaries from coming from our country are now coming to our country to win us to Christ. So we have to be careful to put the aim truly on our mission to evangelize. Number three or number four, it's not apologetics. Evangelism is not just debating. Evangelism is not just getting into a good, healthy uh, scrap with someone on an intellectual level. Now, apologetics, apologia is making a defense for the faith. And I understand that theology. I'm going to touch on that in a minute. But just superficially walk with me with the concept that getting into an argument with someone about the deity and virgin birth of Christ is not necessarily evangelism. And oftentimes that can be very, very negative. Early in my Christian life, I used to like to mix it up with someone and believe that, man, I had just done some gospel work there where in essence, I was basically getting into a battle of wits with someone and probably turning them off from Christ 2 Timothy 2.14 is a warning against this. Paul says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. 2 Timothy 2.14. But to be careful with that. 
It's important to understand the virgin birth of Christ. It's important to be able to debate. It's important to understand the historicity of the resurrection. It's a historical event. It was literal. Christ was literally here. But there's a fine line difference between debating and making an evangelistic defense. Now, what's the difference? Well, let me read a couple passages that talk about this. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, always being prepared to make a defense to, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect to want a fragrance of death to death. I'm sorry, that's actually a different passage, but stop there in verse, verse 15. Making a defense and giving an answer spiritually to someone is evangelism. It is where you live the life in front of somebody and they see your character, they see the hope that's within you, and they ask you a question. What happened? What's the difference in your life? And then you open up and you share Christ. But even in when, when you're opening up, you're not debating the gospel, you're presenting the gospel. There's a difference between getting into a debate, getting into an argument, getting into a battle of wits, which can be healthy, but that's debating. Just like social action can be very healthy. Just like any of the other categories that I've mentioned, these things can be healthy. But you have to recognize that there is a difference between getting into an intellectual debate and actually presenting truths and saying, listen, you need the Lord Jesus Christ to convert you, to transform you, to change your life. And he requires this of you. And if you reject Christ, and you might say it through compassionate tears, if you reject Christ, you're making a decision against God and your soul could be in jeopardy of going to hell forever and ever. And this is what hell is like. So that's evangelism, sharing the truth and leaving the results up to God. Well, speaking of results, the next point, evangelism is not the results of evangelism. Now, this is one of the key points that I would want to make this morning for you. I'm going to preach in a minute, but this is class. This is class time. Just just stay with me. You have to distinguish evangelism from results evangelism. And that's a made-up idea or term. But the idea of being results-oriented has discouraged so many people from putting themselves out there. We can't make the horse drink the water. We can't change the person's heart. Conversion is what God does. We sow some water. God brings the increase. We have no idea who we're talking to, where that person really is, and what in the world God's doing behind the curtain of that person's heart. We have no idea. And I think oftentimes we believe we have to be the impetus. We have to be the change agent. We have to be the person who's flipping the switch with the turn of the phrase. And if we don't pray with them, or if they don't convert and repent and believe, then we have failed. And that discouragement, because when you put yourself out there over and over again and see someone reject Christ, you start to believe they're actually rejecting you, right? And that discouragement stops us in our tracks from evangelizing. Believing it's all up to us or within our power to change someone else is just manipulation and is not biblical evangelism. That's not biblical evangelism when you believe the power is resident within you physically. 
The power is the power of God unto salvation, which is resident within the gospel, Romans 1.16, right? The power is in the gospel. By the way, believing the power is in you or that the power is within even your faithfulness or the power resides in your technique or your tactic or your intellectual debate, believing that flies in the face of the doctrine of conversion that Pastor Johnson preached on just a few weeks ago. The conversion is the message that people are dead in their trespasses and sins. People are not alive spiritually. They're face down in the dirt. Their ears are closed. Their hearts are hardened. And you're, you're sowing seed. You're trying to grow grass. I'm trying to grow grass right now in my backyard. I'm doing everything I can do to grow grass this summer. I've bought potting soil. I bought this kind of ingredient at Lowe's where this guy said, oh man, you get this patch stuff. It's going to come up. It's going to happen. I'm watering. I'm spraying and I'm, I'm looking for baby grass plants. Come to life. Come, come happen. I'm throwing more seed. I'm obsessing. I'm watching. I'm watching. I'm diagnosing and nothing's happening. At least that I know of, right? I'm doing the work. But I need to believe that the work ultimately is just setting the table for whatever God is ultimately going to do in the way that he does it, where seeds begin to germinate, where things begin to happen and grass grows, or it doesn't. That's a picture of evangelism. But believing the fruit of evangelism is evangelism is what discourages people. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ famously said, failure in evangelism is failing to evangelize. You see that? Failure in evangelism is failing to evangelize. The testimony of uh, Acts is where Paul would preach the gospel and some would believe, some would follow, some would reject. You always have this sort of multiplex response from trying to win people to Christ. I want you to turn in your Bibles to what I think is one of the most important pictures of evangelism in our work, and that is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. I love this passage. I've heard it preached to me several times, and I want to just open it up to you. Paul says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To a fragrance from death to death, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The context for this, these verses and this picture and this analogy is that which is found in the Roman Empire during the time of Paul. Roman domination was really for him world domination from a Roman kingdom and a Roman Caesar. And what would happen is these conquering armies would be sent out from Rome and would wreak havoc on 
nations and they, they would triumph over kingdoms and they would enslave their victims and they would, by the sword, bring people to a, a kneeling disposition of surrender. And you see in verse 14, Paul makes a comparison to that warlike domination to the Christian experience and to evangelism. In verse 14, he says, God, who is Christ, is leading us in a triumphal procession. So Christ is the picture of a general leading a army procession back to the motherland where you are the conquering victor. That's the picture of this, these phrases here. In the in Rome setting, which you would have is you would have a parade of the conquering armies and cohorts that would lead the procession. And you would have everybody in all of the kingdom fanfare applauding and celebrating the victor's army as they are marching in. And you would have a general who would be in a chariot leading the procession out front and we have won and we are the victors. And then you, have, you would have high priests who were stationed in that parade with the censers that were hanging on chains with bowls at the bottom with incense in them. And they would be swinging back and forth, giving this wafting aroma of victory. And whatever that wafting aroma of sweet victory was, people, people knew what it was. And it was very encouraging. And the procession would happen. It would, they would come into Rome and we have won. And, and the, the smells and, and the aroma of victory was there in the air. But then at the end of the procession, there would be the slaves and the captives that they had taken as uh, trophies for winning in battle. And they would be shackled and walking behind the horses, behind the procession, and perhaps being led into a lifetime of slavery or even execution. So you had this other part of the parade at the end that was very sobering. It was the picture of people who were not victorious, who were not part of the kingdom, who were enslaved. And with those people, you would have high priests with the chained bowl and censer that was going back and forth with a wafting aroma of death. So you have one aroma that is life to life and another aroma that is death to death. And those two realities are always resident within evangelism, always resident within sharing Christ. You always have one of two outcomes as ways that things are trending when you are giving the gospel. And you need to know that. You need to understand the behind the scenes dynamics that are going on when you're presenting Christ. Otherwise, you'll fall prey to this evangelism fruit mentality where you go, man, I'm a failure, I'm a failure, I'm a failure. I'm trying to reach people for Christ. But instead, we need to be warriors that give the gospel and leave the results up to God. The twofold outcome that's presented here, life to life or death to death. There's always two very extreme effects. You know, Matthew 13, I want you to turn there as well. Matthew 13 is the parable of the soils. And I think it's important to just... Again, touch upon the parable of the soils. You know the different, the four different soils that Christ spoke of. 
You have soil that's, that's hardened on the surface where the seed is sown and it gets knocked over into the road and trampled underfoot and the bird snatches away the seed. You have the second soil where the seed goes in and it's rocky soil where the soil looks soft on the surface, but two or three inches beneath you have rocks that are there and the seed goes in, but because the rock is there, it can't penetrate and create a firm root. And so it dies springs up quickly because it goes not very deep. It jumps up and then dies. And then the third soil is the weedy soil where you're trying to see life take place, but the crab grass around uh, the true grass is being choked out and the life is being drained out of, out of what you want to grow there. It's the third soil. And then the fourth soil is the soft soil where the, the seed can go into deep, nutrient-rich soil where you have different varying degrees of life that comes out of this sowing ministry. Well, look at verse 18. Christ's explanation of these soils shows us something very important. Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. The evil one is the picture of the bird who's swooping down. He's the distortion switch that makes the gospel sound ugly, makes the gospel sound like imposition, makes the gospel sound forced, makes the gospel sound simplistic and simpleton-like, right? It makes the gospel sound narrow in a bad way. Like you're trying to force me down a narrow path that's anti-American. That's what Satan does. And it hardens people to the gospel. The evil one has snatched away um, what has been sown in the heart. This is what is sown along the path. Verse 20. As for what is sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Again, it's as if the root goes down a little bit. So all the life shoots upward. Yet... He has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, hear that. As soon as the word begins to confront people and that person feels the pressure of being a Christian where they're like, oh man, I thought being a Christian was just going to be fun. It is not fun. Instead, I'm receiving persecution immediately verse 21 he falls away he stumbles for what is sown among thorns this third soil this is the one who hears the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of rich deceitfulnesses of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful this is the person who says Oh, being a Christian means that I can't enjoy the world anymore, that the lies of the world are compelling to me and those deceitful ensnarements are compelling to me and I'm going to go back for the world instead of Christ and that chokes the word of God out of a person's heart. And verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understand it, understands it, and he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, in another 30. You have different varying degrees of growth in people's lives. But out of four soils, let me make clear to you that there are really only two outcomes of four soils. You have unbelievers because of what Satan did, because of what the pressure of suffering for the word does, 
or what the deceitfulness of sin does in a person's life, those categories are unbelievers. They look like they're alive, but they're really not. And then you have the one category with varying degrees of fruit that comes out of a soft heart and soft soil. So what do we do? We sow, we share, and we watch what God does. I put it this way. Just I wrote this down. Say your peace and be done. Speak the truth and be free. Be okay with what God is going to do one way or the other. God has primed your world and your arena with people who will believe. I really think that. Acts 18, that was Paul's experience where he went to Corinth and he was discouraged. He didn't want to go there. And God, in a vision, spoke to Paul and said, I have many in this city. So I think it's important to understand, we don't know who those people are, but as we speak truth, the lights will come on from time to time. And Paul ended up staying there for a year and a half. So what is the gospel? One conference, the Lusane Conference of 1974, John Stott, he put it this way. To evangelize does not mean to win converts, but to simply announce the good news irrespective of the results. It's a marathon, marathon race. Now, I um, have permission to share this story. It was from a, um, a meeting I had this week in my office um, of a couple who um, are part of our church nearly from its inception. We're a 40-year-old church. They've been here um, for 35 years. I should say predominantly the wife has been here for 35 years and has faithfully prayed for her husband who was an unbeliever. So she lived the life of trying to win her husband without a word, faithfully attending the church, faithfully as a member, as a a giver, a person who gives time, a person who's giving talent, um, a person who has given her heart to this church, has faithfully prayed for her husband all these years. And so her husband recently had been diagnosed with cancer, this terminal cancer. And so he was willing to come in and meet with me. To, with his wife to share where he is spiritually with the Lord in light of cancer. He's 75 years old. So we're sitting there and I'm opening the counseling time, you know, trying to talk about the weather and open the pleasantry with pleasantries and do my thing and just warm the context up. I'd never met him before. And um, he just said, basically, just stop. Just let me just tell you where I'm at. Just red rimmed. I'll try to get through this, a little bit emotional. Red-rimmed eyes uh, looked at me and just said, I want to tell you that I've lived a life philosophy that God helps those who help themselves. And uh, I, that has never helped me be delivered from the guilt burden of my sin. So I have recently, understanding that I have, and it's called stage seven prostate cancer in you know, a one to nine ratio with this. It says, I have stage seven terminal cancer. I do not have long for this world. And so I have cast myself wholly upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ to save me from my sins. And the burden that I have suffered under for all these years has rolled off my back. Praise God. So at that point, we had church. I mean, it was... Amazing. What an amazing time for me just to come in at the end of this story, right? 
and to experience life and see this person who's a brand new Christian. I, he was so on fire and receptive as we went through Ephesians 2 together. I, he had never heard of Ephesians 2 and, and the gospel truths there about being dead and walking formally about the course of this world under the prince of the power of the air. And, but God, being rich in mercy, has saved you. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I'm saying you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And whether you're 8 or 80, you still have some work to do on this world. And if, I mean... I get paid to do this stuff, right? I mean, how fun to have that gospel conversation. But all the prayers that went in before that are what is so profoundly significant. I didn't do anything. I'm just sitting there, you some sow, some water, and some just get to reap, just get to see it and go, wow, praise God. I looked at his spouse and said, so what's it feel like to be married to an on-fire Christian? It was fun. But what was more significant was then to hear this man's story, again, his testimony, which was profoundly powerful for me to hear, where he said he grew up in um, Virginia, the western side of Virginia, not West Virginia, but the western side of Virginia, my home state, outside of Roanoke in a small town that was actually next to a small town where my grandma was and I used to go visit. So I knew exactly where he grew up and he said as a you know, little boy, young boy, he would deer hunt with his best friend and they would deer hunt in the woods and grew up together. And he, you know, his life you know, worked out one way and this other guy's worked out another way. Um, this guy did not believe as yet, but his friend, his deer hunting friend did believe, probably in an early age. And so for his whole life, he kept a friendship with this guy who prayed for him probably for some 60 years and witnessed to him for some 60 years years you go man it's too late this person will never change the gospel won't take effect that's like me trying to grow grass right it's not going to work it's not going to work but this guy this guy moved to virginia beach his friend did so so the the husband that was sitting there the new converts looking at me and he said you virginia beach boys you know you you're given the word but it, this guy had given him the word all these years and now he is a believer it's amazing. It's what God does. He saves people in his own time, in his own way. Conversion. This is evangelism. It's the marathoning of evangelism. Sometimes people become Christians right away when you give them the gospel. Sometimes they convert and sometimes it's just the commitment to endure long-suffering and do the work of an evangelist over the course of your life. All right, so a few applications. This will be our wrap-up. A few applications. Number one, who should evangelize? Who should evangelize? Who? Me? Us? Every Christian. Every Christian should evangelize. I'm going to say what I said from the beginning. If you're not doing this, which I'm guilty as charged, I'm not doing it enough, we are together missing out on the Christian life. I'm just saying it. I mean, we read, we study, we pray, we need to be all about that. But if you don't share, you're not doing what the book of Acts describes repeatedly. Acts 5, 42, 8, 25, 13, 32, 14, 7, 15, 21, 15, 35, 16, 10, 17, 18. These are all verses through the book of Acts that show evangelism taking place. Most often, the evangelists were not the apostles, but the church that was being persecuted. 
Jesus said it in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I've commanded you. Go, all disciples, go, all of us, go. And so that's what the early church did. That's what we're expected to do. Acts 8 says Saul, when he was persecuting the church, he had just overseen Stephen's execution. You remember that moment in Acts 7? He approved it and he saw approved the execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. What happened is, is someone had to die early in the church to show that the gospel matters and the gospel is worth it, died under persecution. Saul cranks up the persecution. He's dragging families out of their homes. He's imprisoning them. He's probably executing them. And then the apostles are staying put, but everybody else is scattering and giving the word of God. Everybody except the apostles evangelize. It says, verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This isn't the apostles. This is the church. So why do we preach? We preach because of this driving motivation. I'm, I, this is it. Why do we do it? It's sort of twofold. One, love. We care. That's why if you would ever evangelize, it's because you love God and you love people. You melt like Jesus did with compassion. Matthew 9, 36. He saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. He saw them as harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. We're supposed to love the world in that way. Romans 10, 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they be saved. Love drives. It drives us in two directions, upward and outward, vertically, horizontally. 1 John 4, 9, 19, he, we love because he first loved us. We feel how we were loved, and so then we love other people in that way. 2 Corinthians five fourteen. the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And secondly, we, we need to be driven by God's glory. We want people, as 1 Peter 2.12, to glorify God in the day of visitation. We want God to be glorified. We want to multiply worshipers. Colossians 4.1, we want God to, well, Colossians 4.3, that God may open the door of the word so that our speech will be gracious. Verse 6, how should we evangelize? Here's some final points. These are in the notes. They aren't in in this note sheet, but they'll be in the notes uh, posted online this week that you can find. How should we evangelize? Number one, tell people with honesty. You can also read Dever's chapter. This is right out of it. Tell people with honesty that if they repent and believe, they'll be saved, but it'll be costly. You tell them that. You can be saved, but it will be costly. Number two, tell people with urgency that if they repent and believe, they will be saved, but they must decide now. I think that's important. Don't look for a better deal. Life is short. You never know when your number will be called. You never know what's going to happen. Number three, tell people with joy that if they repent and believe the good news, they'll be saved, however difficult it may be. It's all worth it. It's worth it to know Christ. Number four, use the Bible. A lot of times we shortchange God's word in the conversation, but the truth is what sets people free, right? Knowing the truth. The word of God is the sharp two-edged sword. It's the dividing 
instrument that God uses to open up the heart. The word, the word is powerful. And so you have to have some access to the word. Oftentimes I'll anchor myself in one passage, one area. I'm not just going everywhere. If God brings scripture back to mind in a conversation, that's great. But a lot of times it's just good to just open it up and just try to get through something with the word of God with someone. You might not say all of the gospel. You might not evangelize perfectly, but just look at it as a long-term conversation. Number five, realize that the lives of individuals and the church as a whole are a central part of evangelism. Loving each other in a unified way, and we've talked about this, church health evangelizes people just by being healthy. Number six, remember to pray. Number seven, build relationships with non-Christians. One person put it this way, and I think it's a good idea. Join a gym or join a club. If you want to get to know people, join an interest group, but do it with the motivation that you're going to share Christ. You're going to go to dinner with them later. You're going to talk to them. You're going to ask them questions. And if you have some kind of bond where you have a shared experience, then it opens people up and they find themselves hearing the truth and believing or rejecting. Number eight, work together with other Christians to make the gospel, to take the gospel to those who don't live around any other Christians. What that is, is code for do missions. We need to grow in our heart for missions as a church to reach the villages, to reach communities, to reach the nations with the gospel. We've got to do it. It's our call. It's it's commanded of us. And we need to fulfill this mission.